Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Wallbank. Hello. Our senior agency reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. And our senior media reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. And coming up, we'll be talking to Ten's execs about their upfronts, including the real difference between Boss and Peach. Then Peach will be younger, cooler, edgier, but also tonally a kind of more relaxed vibe. Standing up to nine and seven. Having a strong alternative still brings the audiences. And the problem with pilots. Because I think people judge them as if they were episode one of a series and they had the same marketing support etc that episode one of a series would have when in fact they were broadcast pilots but first to the week's topics john sintras resigns from sbs facebook revenues jump but no user growth in parts of the world volkswagen's too powerful for tv ad deemed too powerful for tv by ad standards and finally the upfronts draw to a close so let, let's start here this week. Um, Viv, John Sintras, one of those big names here in Australia, a former um, media agency boss, more recently SBS. He only joined quite recently, it feels to me, as chief audience and content officer, but he's gone. Yes, so he only returned to Australia and joined SBS in April, replacing Helen Kelly, who previously occupied that role but passed away at the end of last year. So it's been about six months that John Sintras was with SBS and it turns out that he finished up on Friday last week. And what do we think happened? Well, look, there's always conspiracy theories when people don't last very long, especially when it gets to that magical six months mark. People start asking about whether they made their probation period and and all those sorts of performance metrics. But interestingly as well, of course, we had Michael Labide finish up in October. He was the head of SBS and he has been replaced by Chief Financial Officer James Taylor in that role. So when there's change at the top, people always look at, well, who appointed who and now there's a new leader has there been a problem there we we can only speculate and of course there was also speculation about could could john sintras be in the frame for the now vacant boss of wpp aunz look we've talked about this a lot we have a whiteboard in our office with a list of unemployed executives and roles that are on the market that need to be filled at the moment. We and should run a recruitment agency, really. Oh, honestly, we? we should, where we just join the dots between the two. And, and Isn't that what they do anyway? <laughs> and look, the, the unemployed exec side of our whiteboard is getting a bit out of control. Uh, some of our commenters alluded to the fact that it was convenient timing that Mike Conahan was out of WPP AUNZ and Sintras is suddenly seemingly without a role. But I know that Abby, who's sitting here giving me some eyes, doesn't doesn't agree that Sintras is going to fill that void. <laughs> Did you pick up on that, Viv? <laughs> um, no, I, from sort of what I've heard um, people saying in the industry and, you know, observation, I think the thing that's that's missing there is that creative experience and, um, you know, that that depth in, in having run a creative agency. And I think you probably would need a bit of a mix of media and creative to fill that role. Yeah, and look, I it, it, as we'll be talking later, it was the 10 up fronts this week, which means a great opportunity to gossip all night to executives. So, of course, one of those things were, what was going on with John? And one of the words was, 
you know, the word was beginning to get out for a little while that he was going to move on. There was not necessarily good cultural fit. You know, that seemed to be the the message coming out. You know, it seemed to be that he made the choice to move on. Certainly seems to be the opinion of those in the industry have sort of, um, you know, got a sense of what went on. Um, the, the, the drumbeat on it, though, that he was going to move started before the WPP vacancy opened up. So I think that shuts down any speculation. It was a planned move to that gig. And is there any speculation that he's set to join his former boss, Henry Tasia, who has returned to Australia uh, to head up Amazon Media Group? They, they were obviously quite close and worked very closely together in New York. Is there a drumbeat about that? Speculation, yes, there was. Fact-based <laughs> speculation, no, none whatsoever. No, nobody had an inkling that that was going to happen, but they just they just thought it was like very joining the dots. Exactly. Next, a mixed week for Facebook. So, a funny old week for Facebook this week, Paul. Uh, revenues up, which I. Guess share markets always like, uh, and that was despite losing users in Europe, which is an unfortunate signal, an unusual signal, um, and by the looks of it, stagnant uh, in the USA. Um, how about Australia? Well, they don't break out the Australian figures, sadly, which is a shame because uh, on top of that, the revenues are interesting. The United States revenues per users are nearly thirty US dollars per user per annum. Whereas um, in Australia, we don't get to see the numbers, but in APEC, the numbers are only $3 per annum. And APEC would include Australia? APEC includes Australia, but of course includes all those other emerging economies so uh, that don't have the same marketing spend. Now, another thing that interested me, and it was it was perhaps partly, I, I spent a few days in the UK recently, and I, as I sort of got off the plane in London, the first paper I happened to pick up was the Financial Times, which was splashing that morning with Nick Clegg, the former British Deputy Prime Minister, joining Facebook in this kind of high-powered corporate um, relationships role uh, with, with a sort of global responsibility. What are we to make of that? It really shows that they're getting very, very nervous about government regulation. I mean, Nick Clegg, having been a European MP as well as a uh, MP in the House of Commons and now a Lord, uh, he has had, uh, he's got lots of experience in um, those relationships with government. Really interesting thing though, when that, that was announced, it was Saturday morning our time, my phone went ballistic and there was a real genuine cultural difference between the generations or an attitudinal difference between the generations. Older, pe- older Brits thought he was great and younger Brits despised him with a passion, including and, a few in our office. And I guess the historic part of that was um, he, he was from a minority political party who, party who, who took uh, effectively a coalition role as Deputy Prime Minister and gave up a couple of principles, including over university funding. And burned his party to the ground in the process. So, yes, yes, the party never recovered from it. So, uh, you know, one person did kind of, you know... Uh, on British television, I saw kind of cruelly make that link of, you know, having kind of lost the trust of the public, but enough about Nick Clegg, let's talk about Facebook. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, but with that, it's really interesting too, that we're seeing that push. Quite a bit of speculation now, probably unfounded, but maybe not um, about whether there are any Australian politicians who are uh, going to get similar roles in the Australian uh, operation. Which former deputy coalition 
uh, Deputy Prime Minister would, would be a great fit. Would it be Barnaby Joyce? I was thinking that myself, <laughs> yes. It's, uh, he would go down very well there, I'm sure. And then the other thing we're looking to for signals from, from Europe, I suppose, was again, it was also the budget in the UK. And one of the kind of things that was signaled there by Philip Hammond, the, the Chancellor, was this plan to tax the revenue of some of the big global players and it's worth just emphasising that, the revenue, not the profits. That's right. Signal for Australia in that, do you think? Most definitely. So the Australian Treasury kicked around some ideas a few weeks back, and I suspect this is why we probably are going to see more government uh, communications, relations roles coming available at Facebook, because uh, we've also got the ACCC inquiry still to be delivered, or at least the interim report there. So there's going to be some very, very interesting moves in Australia, but that UK revenue proposal which is a little bit still a bit flaky i think we are going to see something like that in australia too well next the vw too powerful for tv ad has proved to be too powerful for tv okay it's like a wild animal a big black wolf it's bounding across its terrain chasing down its prey it's all muscle a sinew and it turns and it leaps like a bird of prey so not long ago on the Mumbrella cast, uh, we talked about the release of the Too Powerful for Television ad, and it kind of poked fun. Maybe you sort of woke up the bear a bit of the Advertising Standards Board and its rules about car advertising. Um, welcome to Irony Corner, Abigail. <laughs> I was... Uh... Kind of excited to see it on the Ad Standards Board, I won't lie. Uh, but when I saw that it was upheld, yeah, irony um, is exactly what I thought. But it's quite interesting because, you know, I watched that ad and personally I, I thought that it would be clear of the Ad Standards. I'm no expert on it, but I do do write about it a lot. But basically what Ad Standards took issue with, despite there being complaints about speeding, um, environmental damage and also unsafe driving, what ad standards really took issue with is the scene in the ad where the Amarok V6 is seen or partially seen overtaking two road trains. Um, and, and that scene is intercepted with a toy car and a director basically um, showing the toy car going around the truck. But uh, the Amarok is only seen at the start, starting to sort of veer out in front and then at the end driving away. But uh, the toy car is seen being with the director holding it, overtaking the road trains, but that was it was unsafe. And do you think that if they just do a slight re-edit of that ad – is the signal that it could then come the right side of the rules. Yeah, so basically that's what Volkswagen have said they're going to do. They, they took the 60-second ad off air, but I think they have said um, that they were going to re-edit the ads. So do you reckon this was the plan all along? I actually don't think it was. I When I wrote the story, I, I got an, an email from DDB asking if they could add in a comment to the ad standard story, which they did. And their chief creative officer, Ben Welsh, said, despite enormous efforts to abide by these advertising codes, it, seem the, it seems the Amarok V6 is still too powerful for TV. And I, I uh, sat down and, and had a chat with Ben Walsh as well about the strategy behind the ad. And, and it definitely was to sort of be able to uh, keep the ad on TV while showing its power. But even that line there has given him an opportunity to spruik how powerful the vehicle is. So I'm going to have to take a stand here and think 
they definitely factored this into their plans and I think they would have had a plan A for it not getting banned and a plan B for it getting banned because that's some good spin there. Like (laughs) despite every effort, we've tried so hard but our car is still too powerful. It's very convenient for them there. I think they might have known that it might be reported, um, you know, as it it was cleared of speeding and environmental damage but I don't think they probably prepared for it being banned. But, hey, I could be wrong. So it has been a big week in the television industry with TENS upfronts taking centre stage, the final of the big upfronts for 2018. Uh, Elsewhere, a more underwhelming week for TV viewing with some disappointment with uh, new reality offerings. Um, Zoe, let's let's start with the viewing side of things before we get onto the upfronts. Um, family food fight on Nine. Look, Nine's family food fight didn't have the best start in 2017. If you remember, there was the infamous article that we wrote with um, Adrian Swift. Adrian Swift, Nine's produ- uh, sort of head of content, really. I mean, he's the head of showbiz and light entertainment and all things, all things sparkly. All things like sparkly. Um, there was the infamous. Um, conversation about doing a jig if the show reached 800,000 metro viewers on premiere it obviously didn't this year it premiered with 411,000 metro viewers and while you can't and it's not fair to count the um decline over a week because a premiere is always going to be the biggest number it is sitting below 400,000 at the moment now it's not the only show on television this week that's not performed so well. Well, let's just before we get on to other channels, just on Family Food Fight, for those who haven't seen it, just the format? The format is that, and it's changed a little bit this year, now they're doing, I believe, two, two two people from each family. But the concept is from lots of people in Australia from lots of different backgrounds, the concept of the show is to celebrate the food that families make together. So if you're Italian, you know, you might have Nonna's favourite pasta. Um, I just thought of that. I'm actually Greek. So they they had a Greek um, family last year. The tweak that they've had this year is that they're only working in twos. So they felt like last year there was just too many people on screen at one time. It was just a bit much for the audience. So I've cut that back. And then basically there's a judging process each week, similar to the way that other food shows work and i guess this is the thing that the whole for nine is over on 10 you've got the strength of master chef on seven you've 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 got my uh, my kitchen rules so it's it it, it, it's finding something for nine that works you can see why they want to be in that genre definitely and you know they are doing something very different to what the other networks are doing the concept of of a competition is the same but that's i think the reality of television or reality of reality television rather but yeah they I mean they've come into the space a little bit later with this program they're giving it another crack and it's also the end of the year and there's a lot of people we've noticed not watching tv at the end of the year so you've also got to keep it I think in relative to the way that people consume television come the you know beginning of summer and again presumably we won't really know until we get see the catch-up numbers as well of course and that's something that nine um and seven particularly have been huge on this year looking at the catch-up numbers well let's look at seven so bride and prejudice again i guess for if nine are trying to sort of fill a space in the food space bride and prejudice is seven part of seven's attempt to fill a space in the dating space 
Exactly. They're just, you know, taking all of each other's ideas, tweaking them. Um, no, not quite like that. But in this case, it definitely did feel like it was a Married at First Sight for Seven. Which is a nine which show. Which is a nine show, a very successful nine show that runs at the beginning of the year. Now, Seven's Bride and Prejudice also premiered last year in a much later time slot. I think it was something like 9 p.m. And it had more than 800,000 viewers and that how, time. And how did it do this week? This week it premiered with 633,000 Metro viewers, which was running – it was up against Family Food Fight on the night and also – Blind Date, which is Ten's new dating show sort of thing as well, or old dating show that's been revamped that night too. So actually, Bright and Prejudice, relative to how the other shows in the same time slot were performing, it was actually the most watched. But I wouldn't say that traditionally you'd be pleased with 633,000, just as you wouldn't be pleased with Family Food Fight's 411,000 viewers. But I suppose it at least put seven in the fight in the dating scene where I guess The Bachelor is the, the big daddy at the moment. Well, we call it Big Daddy because it's not doing that well either. Um, Ali, Ali's definitely Bachelorette, Bachelorette rather. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, you've got a a big dating show or big uh, franchise in Bachelor, Bachelorette, and Bachelor in Paradise. It's a well-known fact that the Bachelorette is not doing that well this year. I think the numbers were around the five hundred thousand mark uh, on Wednesday night, um, which is, you know, not not probably where they want to be and I'm sure that they want to be higher given The Bachelor with Nick uh, Honey Badger or Nick Honey Badger Cummins. That's with the little com- – uh, I always forget if, the name if, of that. <laughs> if, only the, uh, if, if only the listener could see the air quotes. Yeah, if there, only the listener could doing. see the air quotes. Um, you know, it hasn't performed that well, but at least Seven comes in with a fighting chance. What I would say, though, is Bright and Prejudice has been tweaked this year to bear and and for those who haven't watched it the concept is that people who are together who I weirdly enough the families don't want them to be together get sort of married or they they I, I watched the proposals all on the on the first night um and and it progresses but there's dinner scenes which seem very very familiar to a format that I watched in sort of March this year which is in um uh married at first sight so look I feel like everyone's watching each other and trying to take the best bits of each other. But can you blame them? Married at First Sight was an incredibly successful show at the beginning of the year. So, um, Josie, you appear to be swinging a microphone towards you, away, although you're on the buttons yeah, this so week. Yeah, so I'm on the buttons this week. But I would just like to add that Bride and Prejudice is a great adaptation, a Bollywood adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Check it out. It's a great movie. <laughs> Useful information. Never say you you don't learn something with the Umbrella Cast. Now, um, this week is, I guess, Zoe. It's the final um, big junction week of the year in terms of uh, lots of new shows going to the air. Mm-hmm. Um, tomorrow tonight on the ABC. Yes, tomorrow tonight, which is the new show with Charlie Pickering and Annabelle Crabb, premiered on Wednesday night with uh, six hundred thousand Metro viewers, which is actually for the ABC. I mean. Nine, seven, and ten are competing in a much bigger space, but for the ABC, that's actually quite a decent performance. It's ironic, isn't it? We talk about seven doing six, three, three, and it's oh, a bit disappointing. <laughs> talk about the ABC doing six hundred. Well done. Well, the ABC, and if anyone who reads my TV ratings every day, they tend to be in fourth place, with the exception of ten and ABC sort of fluctuating. You know, it's a brand new show. It's also on at nine p.m. at night, mind you, and to get a nine p.m. at night, six hundred thousand is actually not that common. You look at shows the US dramas that are on or Tens Playing for Keeps, for instance, that was also on Wednesday night, I think around 8.30ish. They're more down at the 400,000 Metro viewer mark. So for a late show, for a first show, and I think 
people do love Charlie Pickering and Annabelle Crabbe and that might be a little bit of it too and wanting to experiment because it's brand new. But, look, I'll be surprised to see how it how it tracks over the next sort of few weeks to a month. I'm not sure how many episodes they're doing, but that wasn't a bad performance for the ABC. But like I said, it's relative. And, and it's, an interesting, it's an interesting experiment with new format as well. Um, and then finally on our catch up on TV, um, and we will be chatting to Rob Prosser and uh, Beverly McGarvey from 10 um, shortly. Um, we were both at the Upfronts, which ran uh, this week. The final of the Upfronts, uh, nine got in there first, then seven last week and then 10 this week at the, the ICC, the International Conference Centre, Convention Centre, can remember what the C stands for. It's anyway, convention. let's anyway. go with convention in... Uh, <laughs> In Sydney, um, what did you think? Look, what I love about 10, and I love this about 10 last year as well, because I went to 7, 9 and 10's upfronts in 2017 as well, is that when you're preparing these upfronts and agencies are tired and clients are tired because they, they sit through these things, they hear a lot being sold to them, there's something that you can't really create or fake or, you know, generate in 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 any of those upfronts and that is just culture and a buzz it's either there or it's not there's nothing you can do to change that it is just the feeling you have in the room and the thing I love about 10 is they just love to have a good time and you had all of their talent in the front rows they weren't even on stage they were just there they were dancing into the late hours of the evening as well you just the buzz that 10 has around their presentation is something that is just so nice to be in. And if you ask any buyer or any buyer that I've asked so far feels the same way, they just always kind of look forward to 10 because it's just kind of fun and irreverent, kind of like the new branding, which I'm sure we'll talk with Rod and Bev later about. And I got the impression as well, just chatting to a few buyers. I mean, the market, despite being disappointed with 10's numbers, the market wants them to succeed. They they feel there needs to be a big third free-to-air player, essentially to keep seven and nine honest and to keep a bit of kind of, I guess, a trading dynamic going. So there was a mood in the room wanting good news. Definitely. I think nine and seven have always had the who's leading war and tens always sat on the side and tens look, tens probably never, ever going to be number one. Maybe they will. I can eat my words if that happens, but you do need an alternative and 10 kind of owned that they are the alternative last night. I felt more so than last year. They were like, we know we're not number one. We know we don't have the shows that seven and nine do, but Hey, we're 10, we're fun. We have a good time. And we've got a few things that really work in bachelor, all the bachelor versions of the show. And, uh, you know, Australian survivor haven't been paying attention, just got sold to CBS. So they've got, they've got stuff and they just kind of went in there being like, Hey, we're the other guys come and join us. And it's worth mentioning that they had, the, the, I guess, the most show-busy approach. They had a big song and dance number to start the night. They definitely did. And they actually did something similar last year, which I really enjoyed, but it was very – it was a lot bigger this year, I would say. Last year they did a sort of rendition of The Sound of Music's My Favourite Things and Julian Morris was in bed and reassuring everyone everything was okay after the 10 administration from last year and the acquisition by CBS. This year it was – all on stage, there was no cameras and it was big and there was, I think every bit of talent that they've got was on stage sort of creating lines. But Tim, you recognised where you'd seen that from. Yeah, look, it was the, about five years ago, in fact, I think exactly five years ago, the Emmys in the US had this amazing live song and dance number led by Neil Patrick Harris. Great piece of television, broadcast on CBS, the new owners of, uh, of 10. <laughs> so um, it was, you know, it was a rewrite of that song. It was a re- reworking of that tune. 
And I must admit, for the first few moments, I was a bit cynical about that. I nudged the person I was next to and said, well, you know, the song was called Bigger, but this is actually a little bit smaller than that version. <laughs> and then I felt I was being far too cynical when the room gave them a standing ovation at the end of the song. So, you know, I don't remember seeing a standing ovation at uh, Nines Up Fronts. Sevens, I was overseas last week, so I didn't get to. So this was the one up front that actually delivered a standing ovation. It did, and, and it goes back to that thing I said about buzz and, and culture, and you just... You can't fake that. People are going to stand up if they enjoy something or not. And, I mean, admittedly, I wasn't standing mainly because I was taking everything else in and watching everyone else standing. But you had majority of that room up cheering and clapping for 10. And that is that atmosphere is just so good to be around. Irrespective of revenue ratings, take all of that out for a second and just look at the network and how they've – look at the last two years that they've had. They were – you know, 18 months ago when I started writing about media owners, they were in serious trouble and maybe financially they are. We, we don't know that now because they're not on the ASX. But what you could feel was they felt alive, they were proud to be 10 and it seemed like the audience really enjoyed that. Well, next we'll be chatting to two of the key executives from 10, Rod Prosser who leads the sales effort and Beverly McGarvey who leads the programming. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Tim. Joining us now, 10's new Chief Sales Officer, Rod Prosser. Hey, how are you? And Chief Content Officer, Beverly McGarvey. Hello. Firstly, congratulations on this week. It was a um, great event. But if I think about last year, around this time, new ownership with CBS. Since then, you've had a disengagement um, of 10 and MCN and, and a rebrand as well. I guess the big question is, did you always think the year was going to become as big as it, as it has this uh, right now? Yeah, I mean, from from my point of view, and in fact, you know, Bev and I and the whole leadership team had a good insight um, fairly quickly in terms of how we're going to work with CBS because we obviously had a long history with those guys. And I think, you know, the the sales uh, disengagement, uh, right word, is really has been the public face of a whole heap of stuff that's been going on in the business, whether it's the branding, whether it's our strategy. So I think fairly early on the piece, we we kind of started building those blocks. Yeah, absolutely. I think from the very beginning, it was clear that CBS as a content business put a big focus on content and monetizing that content. So really from this time last year, when we started having our very first initial budget meetings, content meetings, everything with them, it was clear that they put that at the heart of the business. And that kind of sets a very clear direction about how the rest of the business operates, which has been really good. And we, and as Rod said, we, these are people we've known for you know more than a decade. We've owned their product for 12 years. And so it wasn't like starting anew. It was really just um, a change of relationship. And um, Rod, you, you've touched on it and Zoe's touched on it. The, the key thing is the the unwinding of the MCN relationship mm. that's starting again. One thing I noticed on the upfront stage was I I was kind of I, I was towards the front but slightly off to the side, which meant I could twist around and follow along on the auto queue as you were speaking. And I noticed you put in one line that wasn't in the auto queue, which was when you were talking about we're ready to trade, we're ready to go from December, and you then put in contrary to what you might have been hearing or something along those lines, which suggests there's some buzz in the industry, maybe from rivals, that you're uh, not ready to go? Yeah, I think, you know, the fact is it's been a big job. And I and I think that, you know, of course our competitors are looking at what we've got ahead of us and what we're going through right now and would think that's a difficult thing to achieve. 
And I think what gives us great comfort is that we are actually ready. We've got there. So that was that was why I threw that line out there because, of course, I've heard that back early on the piece that it was going to be a big job. They're not going to get there by the end of the year. Um, but the fact is we've had, you know, a credible amount of support from, you know, not just CBS but everyone in our building to get us to where we are today. So. Yes. And also, we were selling our own airtime for decades until three years ago. So a lot of that corporate knowledge was there. And as Rod says, now we have CBS as a company that can support us, you know, with technology and all sorts of things. So although we haven't done it for three years, it's something that we have done for many, many years. But well, good pickup. <laughs> You're observing. Auto cube watching is yes. most fun. Um, <laughs> Tim and I were talking uh, earlier and, and the sentiment feels like the agencies really want to back you guys, even if your rivals don't. Yes, exactly. You know, we have been the challenger brand for many years. So obviously there's pricing benefits that we will bring to a to a advertiser and, and client. But importantly, you know, our content works. And I think, you know, no one wants a duop- duopoly in the market. Um, so for for us, you know, I've, I get that sense every day of the week. I, uh, I remember chatting to one uh, agency boss um just just after sort of formalities ended and and absolutely the sentiment is there it's we like to support Tam. we see the importance of yeah, keeping the other two honest and there was also just that nervousness of so much new stuff and you know in particular he was thinking of i think sunday night takeaway is is how much of a gamble can you get the agencies to take on new content that first time round? yeah look that is always tricky. Um, the the fact that gives me confidence, well, actually all of us confidence, is whilst it's new and some of it will be new in this market, it's known formats. So there's less risk in it because we know that, you know, the, the product works elsewhere and has for a very long time. So hopefully that de-risks it slightly. But you're right. I mean, an advertiser is always going to look back to see how we've performed but there's plenty that are willing to take the risk. You know, I always go back to the example with Coles and, and MasterChef. And, you know, I was working at a, a different network at the time and we all laughed the fact that there was going to be a cooking show in prime time and no one would support it. Coles got behind it and it's been one of the most successful sponsorships that they've had. And if there's anything that you guys or anyone could learn from with 10, it's that maybe the first or second series doesn't do well, but the third and fourth, it really tends to pick up. We saw it with Survivor this year, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a really astute observation about the perception that we're doing lots of new things. If you actually dig beneath the surface, although we are doing lots of new things, we're also not. So Dancing with the Stars is an incredibly established format, and there's an audience that will come with that show. We're also putting fresh talent on it. We'll have a very different type of casting, so potentially that appeals to an existing audience and a new audience. So I would say that mitigates quite a lot of the risk. It's also going to be very high production value and a really good version of the show with really good pedigree behind the camera. Something like Takeaway, which may again seem like a risk, was designed for clients in the UK. They have 14 years of experience. It's ITV making it. So the real risk in those sorts of shows generally is execution risk. And we have mitigated that. Changing rooms you know, Nat Bass is in front of it. But again, it's an established format, but we have kind of amped it up and made it very contemporary. So we knew that we had to go into Q1, giving the perception of freshness, but also given um, actual security. So we've really tried to do both. And um, touching on Dance with the Stars, one thing that struck me as well was certainly with Seven, one of its issues was you, you, you put some network talent on it. And after a number of years with the network, you've used all of the network talent. At least what you you you, you have is... 
we we saw on stage at the upfronts there was a lot there, there 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 was a lot of talent singing and dancing right there you've got you've got that fresh slate, slate of talent almost available f- to you before you even have to look outside of the network absolutely and our network talent are important and you will see some network talent in dancing with the stars but you'll also see some off network talent because we don't want to we don't see this as a two year show as you say things tend to do better for us in the later years we see this as you know potentially a long long commission so we want to ensure that we don't utilize all our network talent fresh up and we you know there'll be sporting stars in there and the usual the mix of casting in that show is kind of what makes it really special that you do get people that appeal to the entire audience. So you'll have some 10 people, but also a lot of people who are not connected with the network. And you, you, I guess you need somebody who's terrible at dancing and goes on a journey. <laughs> and my, 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 my early prediction on that, based on seeing him at the upfronts, is, is Pete Hellier? <laughs> <laughs> Poor <Yeah>. Pete. <laughs> oh, Pete is good at many, many things. I think they were all brave. They were all they brave. They were brave. Because Ron and I were a bit scared of talking and walking, and they danced, so, you know. Yes. <laughs> no, that's impressive. No one expects to go into news reading and do jazz hands, I know, and they were great. We were really, you know, the, the, our female newsreaders were just fabulous that they were game enough to do that. We were really happy. And just before we talk about some of the programme in detail, just on that human thing, I found myself sort of wondering, for both of you, and I know you've, you're sort of reasonably sort of stage veterans now, what's it actually like going in front of basically your, your peers in the whole industry, but, you know, I imagine it must be nearly a thousand people in that room, if not more, um, you with a bunch of you know professionals on air on stage talent that's not what you've done for the day job or what you've signed up for it must be pretty daunting it is relatively daunting (laughs) um but i think the important thing is to kind of know what you're doing and believe your story and so we do put a lot of thought into it. We want it to be polished and people to have a good hours entertainment and then have fun because we think they will remember our messages if we keep it, you know, short and um, meaningful. So we do put a lot of work into rehearsing and we wanted to give people a bit of entertainment to start and then give them the messages that we needed to give them in quite a um, snappy way. But it, as you say, it's not our day job. So you know, it, it comes with the job. Though. Yeah, it does. And yeah, it's from my point of view, no question before you walk out on that very big stage with all those people in the audience that, you know, are just, you know, really wanting to hear your story. If you haven't rehearsed or we haven't practiced or we don't know the notes to hit, um, then that's scary. But the fact is, is it's kind of now well-oiled machine really, isn't it? Mm, definitely. I wanted to go back to um, Dancing with the Stars as quickly, but tied into the under 50s audience that you're now targeting. So previously we always spoke about the 25 to 54. This week we also heard that you're going to be focusing more on the 16 to 39s and 18 to 49s. I was a big Dancing with the Stars fan when I was young, but I feel like the audience is a little older. Do you think that will be the case or are you looking for for younger viewers this time? Um, I think you can target Dancing with the Stars to a range of audiences. And for example, the last season that they just played in the UK for Strictly had its best ever season for 16 to 34s. And largely that's to do with casting. They had a lot and of a growth sex sca- And a tabloid sex scandal. <laughs> well, that helps anything. Um, so I think you can target the talent and the music choice and the production value as well. Like young people are very fussy about things like that. They will not watch a show that isn't really shiny and glamorous and really well lit so we will target younger viewers but you know if older people who used to watch it come along and watch it with their families that's great but we will be looking for under 50 audiences yeah and i think you can see that in the real that it's quite contemporary 
it definitely has that feel compared to probably the previous years mm. when it was on seven and I was watching it. It does feel like it's refreshed, but I know that their audience was always older anyway. So it's a new network and a new audience you're targeting. So naturally that will be a challenge. On the demographics, um, I, I, you get to this point where you, you almost feel like you've been writing about this for too long. I, I, I think the number of stories I certainly I've written or covered a umbrella have included 10 switching away from 1639 to 1849, 1849, then to 2554. Now we're back under 50s, which I guess means towards 1639 again. Um, what, what messages do you think the market takes from that? Like, how much are they going to believe that, OK, this is the final settling point under 50s? Well, well from my point of view, what we've sold over the last seven years, even though we moved to 2554, We've really not lost our, you know, history in terms of that demographic of 16 to 39. So we've got a high percentage of under 50s. I think we need a different proposition. And what we have is a different proposition to our competitors. And we simply are younger. So we just need to capitalise on that. And I think the market gets it. I think they honestly understand where we're, where we're heading and why we're targeting that audience. And with the multi-channel strategy, what messages or what audiences are you selling to the market when you're saying, okay, this is the audience you're buying with Peach demographically, this is the audience you're buying with Boss demographically? Well, you can probably answer how um, we're targeting. So what we've, what we've really done um, with rebranding the channels is make the targeting more clear. So 10 Boss will target 40-plus viewers, and we have, as you will have noticed, um, reconfigured the content so the cbs product that we get things like ncis even csi svu from nbcu those sorts of shows tend to skew a bit older and those shows will play predominantly on 10 boss with some of the premier seasons of ncis etc obviously on 10 where they are now but they will target target older audiences along with things like you know the documentaries we do there like the Attenborough stuff and that type of content peach will go younger and so it actually makes it much easier for us to program those channels and therefore to sell those channels 10 sits firmly in the under 50s big broad kind of flagship and then peach will be younger cooler edgier but also tonally a kind of more relaxed vibe and a kind of content that you you know you switch off a bit to and it's very relaxing whereas the content on um, 10 boss is more of those crime procedurals so really it's a demographic split so that we're targeting the younger end of the audience and the older end of the audience and also when we talk about under 50s like it's you know up into right up in their 40s not just that very young end that very young end will be catered for on 10 peach and also um, to expand on that, it's not really just about the linear channels. Um, 10 Daily is really attracting a millennial audience. 10 Play brings younger viewers to our broader content that plays on 10. So for us, it's about the entire um, kind of ecosystem and offering that we have across the platform rather just on the linear channels. And I noticed when you talked about it in the upfront, you didn't really talk about gender splits as well. Do you see... The, the, the channels skewing in different gender directions at all? No, the only thing I would say is that broadcast television generally tends to skew slightly female across the board. So we are not targeting gender, but because of the nature of the content, I suspect that both channels will skew slightly female, if anything. 
Um, and obviously we will have some sports still on 10 boss when it's appropriate and that will probably balance that out so it's more 50-50 but we are chasing demographics not gender splits certain shows will you know split particular ways but we are chasing demographics although I'm sure maybe this is one for Rod when when the right advertiser knocks on the door and says I I, I want to target a female audience Peach is going to be part of that answer yeah I'm sure um, but the, to Bev's point really our demographic split is is just slightly higher in female across all our channels um but the the split on peach may be a little bit higher and of course if they're interested in a female demographic they'll head there but as they will with boss i i actually tim and i had a laugh we turned on the tv today to 10 peach which uh was obviously all changed overnight and the ad was for um funeral services which was probably the worst timing in the world but it was targeting the 18 to to 50 year old people which was quite um we we laughed a little bit actually mid-morning television (laughs) the other thing not to forget with those multi-channels um there is a lot of dynamic trading that takes place so there's there's a, a chase of audience so that 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 is why you'll see that shocking like that. timing. <laughs> and there's also the day part. You know, the people who are available to watch TV in the morning. Lots of your audience should be at work, or should be not watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that that struck me was obviously it's no secret that sport is or the lack of sport is a big challenge. I think the uh, the word maybe you. I think it was you who used well, was tactical around sports opportunities now Melbourne Cup that sort of thing. Um, it did feel that the the points at which you were probably least convincing in the presentation was news and sport, certainly in competition with the others. How big a challenge is that going to be, do you think? From a content point of view, editorially, it's not... It's not a challenge in that we are not in competition with the others. We do not see our competition as just the other linear broadcasters. I think we have to evolve beyond that. And what I would say is that we are incredibly confident about our news offering, but we don't just think it's the five o'clock bulletin. Our news offering is five, our news at five, the project and 10 daily. And that is what we consider to be our news offering. And the way we have structured our newsroom is that our newsroom kind of powers all of those Things And the project is an incredibly successful, desirable brand with a great environment. So I would say we're very confident. Um, would I consider us to be a competitor to seven, nine at six o'clock? Absolutely not in news, but that is not who we are and that we don't want to be that that you don't need somebody in third place being you know you don't want to be in that race. We want to be differentiated and we think we are. And again, with sport, you know, our destiny kind of was made for us there. So we have to do something different. And, you know, the path that we're following is the one that we want to follow and we're really happy with the Melbourne Cup acquisition. Yeah, sure. And I think the important thing to note is having a strong alternative still brings the audiences. You know, we know when we go up against the state of origin with MasterChef, we lose about 6% in our audience. But it's a strong offering and that's what we've got to offer. And you flag that you'll be, you'll be investing a lot in, pro, in marketing the project brand as mm. well. I think you said it's the, the single biggest investment you've ever made in a particular show is that right absolutely and the reason for that is that the project has been on for air for a very long time and it's such a consistently great show six nights a week and every once in a while 
um, are feeling is, and obviously we've done research, that you kind of need to remind people that it's there and that it's there at 6.30. We get a massive uptake in audience at 7 o'clock when people switch over, but also as our audience start to arrive home from work, as a particular part of our audience start to arrive home from work. So we just want to remind people and we think, you know, as we enter the 11th season, it's the right time to do that. It's a, you know, a worthwhile investment. What about the the Sunday project? You obviously brought Lisa Wilkinson across from Nine's Today Show last year. Was Mm. that worth the investment? Is that getting the audiences that you want at the moment? Absolutely. 6.30 Sunday has been a challenge for us for as long as I can remember. And since we started with Lisa, the show's up 18%. So we consider that to be a great success. We're really happy with the quality of the show. And also, we're not in it. It was never a short play. We knew that to build our audience 6.30 on a Sunday is really hard. And to have success there, we would have to be in for the long haul. So we're very happy with it. And also just to expand the project brand, which is a news brand, so that it was on six nights a week made a lot of sense so it's been a year now yeah it's been it's been crazy it was good to see her with the jazz hands as well last night mm, getting yeah, she involved was she did a really good job just we might move on quickly to 10 speaks because podcasting is something that everyone I feel like is doing at the moment if they haven't already been doing it for years what will your offering how will your offering be different to, or to what we already have in market because I know as a consumer I get so overwhelmed with the amount of podcasts I should listen to and I can never find enough time to listen to any of them and I can't really even find a way to to choose which ones when I'm actually looking at them as well um I think to start what our podcast business will be will be adjacent to the broadcast business and then expand out beyond that. And what I mean by that is there are many, many podcasts that talk about our franchises because people enjoy a good chat after a row ceremony, for example. (laughs) And it seems silly to us because we can offer the best insight in that sort of environment and also have the most fun with it. And we know we know the brand really well. And also we work with all of the talent. So I think in, in the early days, it will be those sorts of things. And also just, you know, to think about something like the project, you could easily listen to the project if you were not in an environment where you could watch it and you would still get, you know, 80% of the sense of the show. And that exists already. So for us, it's really about ensuring that we're servicing our existing audiences in all the places they need to be serviced because you know I know for example often I'm in the car when I want to be watching the project so I'd love to be able to listen to it and you know you can live stream it and it's probably illegal to do that while you're driving though <laughs> so that's where I'll start and then I'll expand but it goes back to that notion and, and part of our strategy is is you know once our viewers or our audience are in our ecosystem how do we keep them there mm-hmm. and it's just another extension to to that strategy but equally it's another great thing for, for the new sales team to go out and sell and monetize. Yeah, I think I, when I spoke to you and uh, well, you both and, and Paul Anderson, who for those listening is the CEO of 10 earlier this week, you were talking about the fact that it's about keeping everything in the ecosystem, be it 10 All Access, which you also announced will launch in December, uh, 10 Daily or the actual broadcast medium. You said that that was something that CBS was really good at doing overseas as well. So hopefully you guys will be able to do that here too. That's the one, plan. <laughs> one other programming question. Surely you need a breakfast show. Well, based on your previous point about news, um, I think that if we were ever to go in that space again, we wouldn't do the same. Having Putting up a third breakfast show exactly the same as the other two is not something that we're going to do. We consistently look at all of our day parts and go, where are the opportunities and where's the available audience? So I'd say that's constantly an open conversation but until we find something that we perceive is new to market and differentiated we won't 
do the same as everyone else is doing just because, you know, they do what they do very well, but there's no point having another one of the same. There's also a market size issue. Do you think it's a time slot that has to be live, though, to work? Um, I think that people watch TV in the morning, not they don't sit down and watch it they listen to it and they dip in a night so I think you have to consider that when you're putting something out that it can't be something that that requires a long narrative arc I think it has to be you know a quick snackable narrative arc that repeats or you're out of the house or you're dressing your kids or whatever it is but you're not sitting down with a cup of tea for 30 minutes at 7am god I'm just gonna relax for half an hour well if you are you're very lucky most people aren't (laughs) um pilot week Yes. was obviously uh, earlier this year and we had a guessing game on this very podcast a couple of weeks back of what would surface. We mm-hmm. guessed Taboo and Try by Kyle, which we were correct, but Excellent. there was also a number of other shows as well. I guess the bigger question is around, and, and you've, we've talked about, you know, the shows and the specific reasons for choosing them, but what did you learn from Pilot Week this year? What did you take away from that? And when you launch it again next year, what will you do differently? I think – this year, it was the first time that we did it. The first thing we learned is that we we made more pilots than we had expected to make because we had more great ideas than we expected to get in that environment. I think every single show that we did, we learned something different from. And also there's a time slot issue, a time of year issue, and what we were looking for at particular times. So we got a lot of comedy. I think next year we would like some comedy but some non-comedy projects as well just to balance everything out um i think the other thing that surprised us is that i don't know that we were clear enough that they were pilots because i think people judged them as if they were episode one of a series and they had the same marketing support etc that episode one of a series would have when in fact they were broadcast pilots so i think we need to do a better job as to educating the market that these are broadcast pilots. We are airing them to learn something and we know that maybe if they're 70% there that we will fix the other 30 before they go to series. So I think we were quite surprised um, by that sort of thing. And, is, and when you say educate the market, you mean the industry I mean as the opposed industry. to the consumers? Yes, because I think the consumers actually... Um, we had really good consumer feedback. I think we were surprised by some of the industry feedback um, that, you know, this wasn't right or that wasn't right. It's like, that's because it's a pilot. We make it because we will fix it before we go to series or we, we, we saw enough of the idea that we would love to do it, but it's not the sort of obvious thing you go straight to series with. And if you only do the obvious things that you go straight to series with, I think sometimes you miss out on, you know, something like Taboo, I think would have been, you know, a very challenging commission for anyone to go straight to series with, but the audience responded so well to it. We're really excited that we can do that. Mm. And I think advertisers understand the proposition now, whereas I think when we went to market this year, the whole notion around pilot week, do they buy one of the pilots or do they buy the week? And I think that's that's now something that's resonated with them. It's about the whole week. Well, look, it's been one of your busiest weeks of your year, I'm sure. So, Rod and Bev, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. And just before we go, a little bit of housekeeping. Thank you for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had the chance yet, we'd love it if you could rate it. Or even, hey, write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. That helps other people to find it, which makes you a good person. That's all from us for now, though. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jim. Toodle pip. <laughs>